Good morning, West Park. It's good to be with you this morning. Open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Let me just say this as we turn to Hebrews 10, as uh, we've heard from, uh, from Neil and from Kevin and Corey about the seeds offering. Let me just encourage you, if I might, um, what if you as a family said, are, are the biggest gift we're going to give at Christmas is to the Lord Jesus? Because you know it's his birthday. It's not your kid's birthday. It's not your spouse's birthday. And don't come up to me afterwards and say, you know, we don't actually know that December 25th is Jesus. I know, I went to seminary. Uh, but what, what if you did that? What if you did that? You say, we as a family, the biggest gift we're going to give is to the Lord Jesus through us part. Wouldn't that be a neat thing? Because 115000 in a church this size, I mean, that's, that's tipping God. It's not a lot of money if we all band together. And I'm going to give some money to it as well. I'm not going to ask people, people to do something that I'm not willing to do. Uh, let's pray. Father God, we have come to hear from you and you alone. Your servant is neither capable nor worthy of the task at hand. You know that. I acknowledge that. I ask for your help. I need it this day. So come and walk amongst us. May we hear the sound of sandaled feet and leave this place having sensed that Jesus has met with us. For he is our king. We love you, Lord. We pray in his name and for his glory. Amen. And amen. My sermon title this morning is Signed, Sealed, Delivered. I used to be an old song. Wasn't that an old Motown song? I think, yeah, signs. You have to be old like me to know that. Uh, but sign sealed delivered. It's a legal term. It's a contractual term. It, uh, it means that a, a document or an agreement has been signed, and then in historic terms, they would seal that with wax, and then a delivery person would take it and deliver it uh, to the parties, and it was basically done. Hard stop, right? The agreement has come to completion. Everybody's party to it. Nothing's going to change. It's non-negotiable. It's done. We don't have a lot of that in today's world. Things get uh, renegotiated. As I was thinking this week, I was thinking, it's kind of like an Amazon delivery. Anybody get Amazon delivered to your house? Yeah, all that junk you don't need. And uh, so do I. And, uh, you know, Amazon, when you, when you place your order, you know, and you click, you know, add this to your cart, buy now, you actually are entering into a legal agreement. If you read the fine print, it says once you place that order, you're, you, you know, you're signing up. You're saying, yeah, this is going to go on my credit card. I'm going to pay it. And, uh, and then you know, it comes magically from the Amazon warehouse. They're building a huge one in Cambridge where I live. And, uh, and so then it comes, and a nice person drives up to your house, and they bring it out, and uh, they take a little picture of sometimes, you know, and they leave it on the porch or whatever. They scan it every step of the way. It's scan, scan. You can track it. If you have nothing else to do with your life, you can scan your little Amazon thing as it goes here, there, and everywhere. And then they deliver it. They take a picture. It's delivered. It's done. And you can call them up and say, well, I didn't get my parcel. And they say, well, we got a picture, you know. Somebody left it right there on the porch. Deal's done. And you're kind of committed at that point. In Christ, we're signed, we're sealed, we're delivered. It's a done it's done. And uh, in Hebrews 10, beginning at verse 1, we're going to revisit the text a little bit more this week, and we're going to see that. So hear the word of the Lord and follow along, if you will. Verse number 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near we talked about the, per, the uh, perpetual nature of the law. And our, and our 
author in Hebrews is banging this drum of the law cannot get it done. The law cannot get it done. Look at verse 2. Otherwise, it would not have ceased to be offered. This is these sacrifices. They would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. The writer's saying, if that system worked, once you carried up your sacrificial offering, you, you wouldn't have any sense of your own sin, consciousness of your sin. Well, you know, consciousness is an innate awareness of your guilt, of your wrongdoing. We've all had that, right? You say something, you go, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. Or you may say, oh, I should have spoke up. Or I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't looked at that person like that. That was just not good. And we all have a consciousness to sin to greater or lesser degrees. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to do a little experiment this morning. Okay? Stay with me. I'll be gone here in you know, a couple months. So, uh, But, but here's, here's what I want us to do this morning. Let's say we're Jewish Christians. And we're reaching back into the law. Okay? We're Jewish people. And so listen carefully, okay? Everybody listen. Go along. Everybody listen. I'm going to read some laws. And you listen to the list. Okay? I'm going to read several. And see if you have contravened any of these laws this week. Because at the end of the list, if you have, I'm going to make you all stand up. Okay? Just so you know, the last one's about lying. So that may get you, you know, okay? So let me read some of the laws. Uh, you are not to eat creatures that live in water other than fish. Anybody have shrimp this week? You're, you are not to take God's name in vain. Anybody have a little slip up on that? You are uh, not to wear shatanas, which in Hebrew means that you're not to wear a garment with uh, wool and linen. Interwoven. It's one of the laws. You're not to plant diverse seeds together. What about that garden you planted last summer, eh? You're not to desire another's possessions. Of course, that's Deuteronomy. Anybody uh, sort of say, gee, I wish I had that car. Uh, you're not to curse your mother and father. My mother sometimes drives me. It's easy to do. You're not to eat fresh grapes. Did you steal one in Zare's uh, fresh go? Men must not shave the hair off the sides of their heads. Pastor Kevin's over here. Look at that. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. I know. I'm, I'm guilty too, man. So we're in the same boat. You're not to tattoo the skin. You're not to eat non-kosher maggots. I guess kosher? Yeah, it's okay. You're not to eat the limb torn off a living creature. Well, hopefully a lot of you didn't do that. You're not to eat milk and uh, you're not to eat meat and milk cooked together. If you actually have dinner, if you've ever been to Israel, you'll know at an evening meal there's never milk available if there's meat available. So if they have coffee, you're going to drink the coffee black because there won't be milk. Anybody here have uh, milk and, and uh, meat together? You're not to embarrass someone else. Leviticus chapter 19. Anybody embarrass anybody this week? Not to bear a grudge. Anybody holding a bit of a grudge this morning? Not to borrow with interest. You shall not bear false witness. Of course, that's in the Ten Commandments, Ninth Commandment. Okay, anybody guilty of any of those? Go ahead and stand up. Go ahead and stand up. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Look around. Look around. We're guilty. You can, you can be seated. 
The pastors, the confessional booths will be open, the front. We're all guilty. That's just a handful of the 613 mitzvahs. I just read a handful. Can you imagine trying to keep all that straight in your mind? Trying to sort all those rules and regulations out? Of course, it's hard enough for us to do the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. They they are a little more accessible, right? You shall have no other gods before you. Uh, You know, you shall never take uh, for yourself an idol, including Taylor Swift. You shall not misuse the name of your Lord. We understand all of those. But some of these obscure ones, you're going, what in the world? I just can't get my head around those. But we're all guilty. We're all guilty. So we can see why the writer is driving home to these Jewish Christians. Don't go back to that. Don't go back to the law and embrace that because that there's no freedom in that. Get to verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. You know, you get back to thinking you can make things right with God through sacrifice. It just reminds you of your sin. Verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The law was a disappointing and burdensome system. Uh, you know what it's like? I, I take uh, medication for high blood pressure. That's because I was a pastor for many years. <laughs> but you know what it doesn't do? It doesn't solve the high blood pressure. You know what it does? It buys me some time. It doesn't get rid of the high blood pressure. It just buys you time. It, it doesn't solve the problem. It just sort of masks it. It deals with the symptoms, but it's not a solution. And... Thank goodness that we have those kind of medications. But it's only a symptomatic solution. In your notes, you have this statement. Nothing, absolutely nothing, we do by way of actions and attitudes can release us from the penalty of sin. And that's what sets Christianity apart from virtually every other major world religion. And that's why some religions cannot get their head around this because they are on a march of drudgery trying to make things right with God. But in the Christian biblical framework of redemption, there's nothing you can do that buys you out of your sin penalty and releases you from that. Nothing. Now I want us to grasp the evidence of the case for this completed work of redemption this morning that we find in Christ. Because the Jews had that sacrificial system. It was medicine, just dealing with the symptoms. But in Christ, everything changes. Everything changes. If you're here this morning, listen, and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, you listen carefully to what I'm about to say. In these next few minutes, in Jesus, everything changes. Look down to verse 5. Consequently, which means as a result of. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and what is going to be quoted here is Psalm chapter 40, a Psalm of David. They're reaching back, because these are Jewish people, they're reaching back to the Old Testament. 
Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will. O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offering, offered according to the law. Then I added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first to establish the second. We talked about that a little bit last Sunday. Did you notice what we're reading here out of Psalm 40? We're reading the reality of the life and death of the Lord Jesus from the moment he steps out of heaven. I talked about this last week. He has this incredible, overwhelming, consuming desire to do the Father's will. That's John 6.38 if you want a reference. For I did not come down from heaven to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me, my Father's will. And of course, we could have no clearer sense of that than if we go back to Isaiah 53, which often we read at Christmas time and at Easter. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The cleansing, of, of, the cleansing for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And of course, it wasn't the dying in and of itself, singularly, that was Jesus' ultimate act of obedience. The ultimate act of obedience was taking the sin of the world upon himself. And that's why he prayed in the garden, and uh, we read it in Mark chapter 14, where Jesus is just overwhelmed, humanly speaking, with the reality. And he says, Abba, Father, he says, with you all things are possible. He says, remove this cup. Do I, would you lift this from me? But, but if this is your will, I am all in. I'll do it. I'll do it. Look at verse number nine again of Hebrews 10. Behold, I have come to do your will. Jesus does what we couldn't have done. Christ's redemptive work is God's perfect eternal plan. What Jesus has done for you, that was God's plan A. It's not plan B, it's not plan C, it's God's plan A. 1 Peter 20, 21, for he was foreknown, this is of the Lord Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for, this, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Isaiah 53, go back to the Old Testament, we read, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's how great God's love is. Look again at verse 10. Now by that will we have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Amen? Once and for all. If you're a Bible marker, write in there, signed, sealed, delivered. The end of verse 10. You are signed by God's plan in eternity past. God said, no, this is my plan. You are sealed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and you are delivered from the penalty of your own sins which you could never find any way out of apart from what Christ has done. And certainly 
a big part of that is the consciousness of our guilt is lifted. Now, there's three, there's three sort of pieces or parts or steps to that sanctification reality. When you first come to Christ and you say, Christ, I, I, I believe deep in my being, I, I, I believe in my heart, I confess with my lips that you are Lord and Savior, that you've come into this world to die and take upon the sins of the world, including mine, and Lord Jesus, I would like for you to take my sins upon you. I turn away from my sin. With your help, I'm gonna follow you. I'm gonna live a new life. That's called salvation. And at that moment, you are freed from the penalty of sin. In fact, you are positionally set apart. Uh, Paul says that we're actually at that moment seated in the heavenlies, even though we're not there yet. But the penalty of sin has been lifted from us. Uh, in theological terms, we call that justification. I've been justified. You know, I used to say, in, you know, people say, you know, justified just if I had never sinned. I, I never liked that. Because the reality is you have sinned over and over again. You'll continue to sin to some degree, but you are freed from the penalty of sin, that first step. And then as you grow in Christ and you get spiritually stronger, and then ultimately, you at least and this is why you should grow in Christ, we talked about, the, about that reality when you don't and you just sort of stay as, you know, like, you know, baby Christian. But as you grow in strength and as you grow in your knowledge of the word and your fellowship with other believers and you become a more resolute, uh, devoted follower of Jesus, then you are increasingly freed from the power of sin. Not completely. Even Paul says, I do things I wish I wouldn't do. If Paul's struggling with that, you and I are certainly going to struggle with that. But you increasingly are freed from the power of sin. That's sanctification and it's progressive. Right? Uh, you shouldn't uh, be the same Christian today that you were 10 years ago. Hopefully you're growing. You're seeing greater victory in your life. You know, you're getting freed from some of the things. Uh, one of the things that God uh, had to help me with that I realized was part of my sanctification is I used to have a, well, sometimes my wife would say I still do, but she's not here. Uh, <clears throat> I used to have a really short fuse. I could get angry like really quick. And I was like, that is sinful. You know, and, and I had small kids at the time, and I was thinking, man, you can't, Steve, you cannot die. You know, you know what convicted me? Word of God. For the anger of man does not produce the, does anybody know what it says? Righteousness of God. That verse convicted me, convicted me, and I began to grow, and God gave me greater and greater freedom in that. And I said to a couple of people in my life, like, when you see me like that, just give me a little nudge. I need to be aware of that. And with God's help, and God began to do a work in me, and I began to find increasing freedom from that. And I, the power of that over me was lessened. And then ultimately, when Christ comes back, we'll be set free from the presence of sin. That's glorification. One day you'll be set free from the presence of sin. Doesn't that sound great? I guess not. Sounds great to me. Aren't you going to be glad when you're set free from the presence of sin? Amen. When you go out in the world and people are acting terrible and you look at evil and you look at the pain and the suffering and all the disarray and you say, one day that will be gone. We're coming under new management. Amen. Glorification. Oh, man, I can hardly wait. can hardly wait. 
want to show you a picture. See if you recognize this picture. <clears throat> I think I'm going to show you a picture. I'm thinking about showing you a picture. Do we have a picture? We're supposed to have a picture. Okay, there's the picture. Does anybody know what this picture is from? Just shout it out. It's okay. 9-11. 9-1-1. If, if you were uh, sort of a, you know, a child, you know, like a, a teenager or an adult or older, you probably remember that day what you were doing. Does everybody remember that day? Right? I remember where I was. I was in my office in South Carolina. Put the picture back up. Can we put it back up? Just leave it up for a second if you would. So this is George W. Bush. This is the guy that I, I met. This is George W. Bush. And this is his uh, chief of staff leaning over. He's at a book reading in, a, in, a, in an elementary school in Florida. And this leans over and says, something has gone horribly wrong. We've had planes hit the World Trade Center. Now you look at the look on his face. What's that a look of? What is it? Say it. What is it a look of? Fear. Concern. What has just happened? What is happening? The, the look is predicated on the reality that he realizes very quickly he has just entered into an immediate unknown of a very significant scale. I think this is why we're becoming very fearful as a society because we live in a society with smartphones and all this where we can find in, in, infinite and instant information. And when we can't find out instant and, and infinite information on a situation we have to deal with, we've lost the capacity to trust. It's been counterintuitive. George Bush hears this reality that everything's changed and he's sitting there and he's going, what in the world does this mean and what lies ahead? I was at Ground Zero one week after 9-11. I was there with some church leaders and some, some Christian ministry leaders. We were there seeing how we could help the churches in New York City at the time. And I remember that trip I remember walking down the streets and the dust still on the fronts of stores, on glass and everything, and I can remember seeing over and over again bicycles chained to parking meters and posts and everything covered in dust. Nobody had touched them. They were like memorials. Those bicycles were the bicycles of, of uh, bicycle messengers, couriers who were delivering signed, sealed, delivered documents to law offices and financial firms. And of course, they'd have their backpack with the documents and they would chain their bike up and run into a building or whatever. And in some cases, they never got back to their bike. And those bicycles were sitting there covered in dust. Many of them had flowers stuck in the spokes and in the handlebars. They were memorials. And I thought, wow, I, this is surreal. I can remember when I rode back to the airport to, to fly back to Atlanta, and uh, there was a man, uh, the man driving the taxi cab, he was an African man. We got talking and he had come from Africa for a better life. 
in America and got a job driving the taxi. And I said to him, can I ask you on 9-11 there, where were you? He said, I was in one of the tunnels between the island and the mainland. And he said, we were sitting there, we were just creeping along. And he said, that's when one of the buildings came down. And that ball of dust came down through that tunnel. And he said, people started to run. He said, I was pointed towards Manhattan. So people were so panicked, they got out of cars and they started to run this way, screaming and shouting. And I said, what was that like? And with that, he turned around and looked at me in the back seat, eyes wide. And he said, it was the sound of death. He said, thankfully, I stayed in my car, even though I wanted to run too. He said, I think it saved my life. Everything had changed. Everything had changed. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Everything in Jesus has changed. Put George Bush's face back up. Can we put George back up? You see, there he is. You know what I imagine this face? See the look on his face? That's the look on Satan's face when Satan gets whispered in his ear, we got a news report from Jerusalem. The tomb is empty. That's the look on Satan's face because Satan knows everything's changed. In Jesus, everything has changed. Amen? Everything's changed. Show you another slide. Let me show you a word. Does anybody here read Greek? We got any Greek speakers? Anybody can read that? The word is tetelestai. It's a Greek word. It's in your New Testament. If you have a Greek New Testament, you're all probably reading from Greek New Testaments this morning, right? It's the most important word we could focus on this morning. It's actually... In English, it's three words, but it's only one word in Greek, tetelestai. It's in the New Testament. Do you know what the three words in English are that are only one word in Greek? It is finished. One word, it is finished. Now, I think most of us or many of us will know that Jesus wasn't speaking Greek. The New Testament is scribed out in Greek. It's recorded in Greek. But Jesus wasn't speaking Greek, he was speaking Aramaic. And Aramaic is a, a derivative, it's a version, if you will, of Hebrew. So the question is, we say tetelestai, it is finished. In Greek, what is it in Aramaic? Well, scholars debate this. But many feel that the most accurate translation is one word, was used in Aramaic, and the word is shalim, shalim. It very closely resembles another Hebrew word that you may know, and that word is shalom. Jesus says, hanging on the cross, finally and forever, peace, peace. Because the consciousness not just the penalty of your sin can be lifted. When Jesus utters these words, it's a declaration of victory. It's a shout of triumph and recognition. He's accomplished the work that he has been sent to do. 
The Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son together have determined that this would be the way, and now their purpose was accomplished. Signed, sealed, delivered. Look at verse 11. And every priest stands at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It is finished. Why is it finished? Because Christ's work is finished. It's completed. Let me show you a photo of the tabernacle again. We looked at this last week. Do you notice anything missing inside there? You have these in your house. Chairs. Somebody said it. There's no chairs in there. Do you know why? Because the high priest's always at work. He's got stuff to do in there. He's, he's got stuff to do. There's no, no time to sit down. How many of us heard that from our parents, you know, when there was stuff to do? There's no time to sit down. Right? But Jesus, we just read, verse 12. But when Christ had offered all, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. His work was completed. Secondly, it's finished because Jesus is victorious. Look at verse 13. Waiting from the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And the greatest enemy, of course, is death. Jesus is victorious. It's finished because that it is finished statement by Jesus. That shalem is a victorious statement. Verse 14 for by a single offering he was perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. For all time. It is finished because Christ's redemptive work is permanent. See that? For all time. It's permanent. See that in verse 14. And then finally this. It is finished because the promise of the Holy Spirit has been realized. The promise of the Holy Spirit has been realized. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and I write them on their minds. We now have changed from the inside out. From the inside out. Let me just share this as we close this morning. If you want to carry something away, here's the idea this morning that I want you to carry away, the big idea this morning. As a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are free. Your redemptive work has been finished by Christ. Now there's days when you're not going to feel free from the power of sin, I get it. Positionally, you are no longer guilty. So do you have a sensitivity to your sin? Yes. You don't want to get cavalier about it. That's the spirit of God dwelling in us. When you say, oh, you know what? I should never have said that. I need to go and make things right. I got to apologize. I got, you know what? I, I shouldn't have done that. I, I meant to do that and I didn't keep my word or whatever. That's a sensitivity to your sin, but that's different than walking around carrying the guilt of that. And that's why verse 17, it says, and then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Nor should you carry that guilt friend of mine's a pastor in Atlanta. 
was talking to him a while ago and he uh, was telling me that <clears throat> they run an early morning men's Bible study at their church. I think it meets about 6 or 6.30 in the morning. They were having this Bible study and all the men were sitting around tables talking and my pastor friend, he looked to the back of the room and a guy came into the room that he had never, re- never seen before, he didn't recognize him, and he sat down at a chair at the back and my friend was saying, I could tell this guy was agitated. And he said, I didn't, you know. So my friend walks back to him and kind of sits down next, next to him and says, hey, you know, how are you? And the guy's almost, you know, he's just in really not a good place. And he said, I'm not good at all. And my friend said, oh, what's wrong? He said, I, I carry so much shame and so much guilt, so much pain. And he said, well, I got a solution for you. And the solution's Jesus. You can offload all of that hunt to Jesus this morning. You can confess whatever your guilt is. And he'll lift that from you. And the guy says, no, not this. He said, yeah, anything. It's not beyond the Lord Jesus. And he said, well, I think I would like to do that. If you, if you think that'll work, I'd like to do it. So my... My friend Buddy says, yeah, you should do that. He said, let me, let me, let's pray. And he said, I'll pray, and then you can pray, and, and I'm gonna just encourage you to confess. So my friend starts to pray, and then he says, uh, and whatever the guy's name was, he, he wants to say something to you, Lord. And this guy starts to shake and to weep uncontrollably. And he says, Jesus, forgive me for killing my children. Wasn't expecting that. What had happened to this guy was before he got married, he and his girlfriend had had two abortions. And that guilt had etched itself deep into his soul. And that day he confessed that. And Jesus lifted the guilt. Listen very carefully. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, Jesus paid for your sin. And it doesn't matter what it is. can say, Jesus, how would you lift this for me? And not only will he lift the penalty, he will lift the guilt of your sin. And that is a glorious reality. So if you're here this morning and you haven't done that, make Jesus your king. Make Jesus your Lord. Let him stand in your place. He's already done it. It is finished. Amen? Signed, sealed, delivered. You are free in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Father, if there's someone here this morning watching online who've never come to a place where they've said, 
Jesus, would you be my Lord and Savior? Would you bear my sins? May I turn away from self and all of the stuff that has gripped my life and my heart, regardless of how big it is. I, I want to offload that onto you. I want to cast all my cares upon you this morning, Lord Jesus. I pray that they would do that this day and walk in newness of life free. Father God, we thank you that Christ has made the sacrifice once and for all. Jesus has paid it all. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father, that Jesus has paid it all. Everything for all time, in every regard. To God be the glory. Amen.